At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest this week is Kevin Mao, a partner and head of credit at Block Tower Capital. I have been excited for this conversation because while a lot of people in crypto seem to be focused on building a brand new financial system from scratch, this conversation focuses on how crypto rails can improve the traditional finance world. After nearly a decade at Citigroup, Kevin straddles both the TradeFi and DeFi world. And at Block Tower, he is working on bringing the multi-trillion dollar securitization market on-chain. We go deep into the weeds on this one. First, getting into the nuts and bolts of how credit and securitization traditionally work before diving into Block Tower's approach to transform this entire process, move it on-chain, which will reduce friction, errors, and consequently, fees. Okay, we don't usually do this, but... I hate using jargon and I try my best to stay away on the show, whether we're using analogies or trying to give better examples so people can stay focused on the conversation. But inevitably, in the world of finance, specifically securitization, terms can start getting thrown around quickly and maybe confusing. So just a brief overview of some of the terms. A QCIP is just a nine-digit number to identify a security. In the bond and loan space, this is the number we quote to each other to know we're buying and selling the thing we are interested in. A CLO is a collateralized loan obligation. It's just another word for securitization, and it's a pool of loans. Instead of owning a single loan, you're able to buy a basket of loans and have a single security attached to it. And finally, special purpose vehicle, or for short, SPV, is just a legal entity which can hold an asset. In this case, we're talking about a legal entity being structured to hold the loans, where it's simply an entity that has assets and liabilities associated with the security structured. Hopefully that's helpful. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Mao. Kevin, this is going to be a lot of fun because one of the areas I've been most interested in is Wall Street's use of crypto rails for the plumbing of how things move around, how instruments are settled. And I think that at first it might seem like a topic that isn't as interesting. I think as we go through it, people will realize how this impacts everything in their life from their mortgage to their credit cards, if we get this right. The place I wanted to start was if you come from the traditional finance world, and we've talked about this in the past, you've actually built something, you've had to get into the belly of the beast. And as fixed income people 
settling a bond and realizing that a hundred million dollar trade is me calling you saying done, handing to our back offices who then reconcile and all the silly steps in between that both lead to errors, mistakes, costs, and eventually passed on to the end customer. It feels obvious that we'll move to a decentralized system at some point. I just think it's going to take a really long time. And so I thought a fun place to start would be your perspective coming from TradeFi structured credit to the crypto hedge fund world. What is your view of our progression from the older rails to potentially adopting more crypto-like rails? Yeah, it's a great question. The first thing I would say too is Block Tower Credit, the fund that me and my partners co-run is a hedge fund, but we're a structured credit hedge fund. We invest in traditional credit assets, consumer asset-backed securities, the TradFi stuff, but we use blockchain rails as basically a way to create CLOs, these structured products that you're mentioning through smart contracts. And so we live in this parallel world where we're settling bonds via DTCC, they're failing, we're getting fail interest charges, all of this stuff that you just described. On the other side of it, we're minting die or capital out of thin air. We're able to use that off-ramp it into real-world fiat dollars to purchase these assets. On a day-to-day basis, we're already seeing, wait a second, when we do everything in the decentralized blockchain public ecosystem, this stuff settles like this. And then on the other side, wait a second, we're waiting for T plus two to possibly T plus 25. We had a bond fail for 23 days at one point. We were going out and trying to figure out, hey, when are we going to get this bond? Nobody was worried about it because they're like, yeah, this happens all the time. That is a ridiculous way for this entire thing to work. Going back into the question of where do I see a lot of this stuff going in the future? Well, the reality is if you break down that process of buying and selling a bond, you've got two counterparties talking to each other. They're pricing the asset. Pricing the asset itself is not something that the blockchain does. That's a decision that we make as investors. But the moment that the trade is agreed upon, and then we go to the middle office or the back office, well, the middle office and the back office is the bulk of how our financial system or the cost structure of our traditional financial system today. Whereas the way that we execute it, it's instantaneous. The incremental fee is gas. And that fee is decreasing on a, at this point, annual basis and in a step function way. I would say the first important thing is to delineate what does blockchain solve and what does it not. The front office functions, the idea of pricing this asset, it's not going to go away just because things are done on blockchain technology. But the moment that you agree, hey, wait a second, this is the trade that we want to do, then I think the guts of the system traditionally goes to, you've got a middle office person writing a bond trade ticket, you've got the person on the other side writing a bond trade ticket to get matched up in some sort of internal system. Both sides have to reconcile the other side's numbers, and then it gets sent to DTCC. And then DTCC says, all right, I've collected money from you. I've collected this asset from you, T plus two days. It's in here by 3 p.m. Then we're going to just settle the trade. I'm going to move this over to your ledger. You're going to have it here. The cost of doing that, the personnel, the time, the reconciliation, the cost of trust there is so immense. And then it doesn't exist in our ecosystem. We're already doing that in a totally decentralized and public fashion using code. To me, it's mind boggling that people don't see that that's like the direction that things are clearly going to go. Block Tower currently, relative to traditional finance, might be operating in the future. But let's rewind to the past to set this up. So what's a good example of whether we do a bond or a CLO, or what's a good product to use as how we would trade and settle that in the current world 
and then how you see that existing in this new world. Yeah, absolutely. We can start with the sector that we know best and that we currently traffic in, which is securitization. Taking a step back, what is a securitization? A securitization is basically a box. It's a company. It's an off-balance sheet, special-purpose vehicle that has assets and liabilities just like any other company. The assets themselves are cash-flowing promises or debt. So it could be mortgages, could be auto loans. And to be clear, this underpins basically all of modern society, particularly here in the United States. That market alone is a $14 trillion market. Now, why are you pooling all of these assets together in this box or in this company? Well, the reason is, let's imagine you come to me and you want a mortgage. And I say, all right, well, how do I price this risk of Eric Goldman? I don't know if you're going to lose your job tomorrow, God forbid you pass away, whatever it is. The hurdle for me to give you a loan is fairly high because there's a binary risk associated with me giving you this loan. So by packaging 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 loans together, what ends up happening is the law of large numbers starts to come into it right here. So I'm saying, all right, well, if I lend a million dollars to you for you to get a mortgage, I can also lend a million dollars to 10,000 individual loans. And so I've got a slice of all of these different loans and I can start to use statistical analysis to find the base rate of debt, to find the base rate of prepayments, default rates, et cetera, across a large number of assets because I have equal or have pro rata exposure to all of these things. And that forms the basis of why this really needs to exist. It's a way to engineer lower cost of capital by basically reducing that binary risk in my relationship to you as a lender and borrower. But the second thing is, those are the assets in this company. And then on the liability side, I've also got the ability to create different tranches of risk. Perhaps there are insurance companies that are optimizing for principal preservation because they just want to generate some income so that they can go out and then basically pay out premiums in five years or seven years or whatever it is. They're willing to get less return to be in the senior part of the capital structure. The hedge funds want more capital. They're trying to hit a 12% return hurdle or whatever it is. And so they're willing to take more risk by being in the subordinate first loss pieces. But by doing this, what you're really doing at a say high level is you're enhancing product market fit. The product is financial risk-adjusted return stream, and you've got someone who wants a safer return or a safer risk, and you've got someone who wants a junior risk. In that case, by being able to construct, here's these $10,000, here's these 10,000 loans, the borrower is paying in their monthly payment, et cetera. But not only do I want to employ the law of large numbers to feel better about lending into this pool of loans, I want to feel even better if I'm an insurance company. I want to create that senior loan. So the first $30 of losses or 30% of losses, for example, goes and gets borne by someone else. And I have a very high certainty that I'm going to get my money back. This is just like the administration of securitization. That process alone, before we even get into the trading, the settling, when that bond is created, all of that stuff, that process alone, on average, takes probably 30 to 40 basis points per annum because there are, call it 12 to 14 different counterparties associated with just doing that. Here's 10,000 individual people. They all need to go send it to their individual servicer. The servicer collects all the dollars. It goes into the SPV or it goes into the bank account of this company. That is basically recorded, audited by the trustee, the administrator of the deal. And then they go to the calculation agent and they say, all right, well, 
Now I've got the senior and these junior liabilities. They have some sort of waterfall. They get senior interest, senior principal, junior interest, junior principal, or whatever. Now I'm going to have some random person basically write a Excel formula and just tell us, okay, well, the benchmark rate was here. So this tranche gets this amount of interest. This tranche gets this amount of principal all the way down and then gets sent to the paying agent. The paying agent sends that capital. You get this amount of interest. I'll send it to DTCC. The next thing will go to, or this junior principal will go to DTCC, DTCC, then collates all that money because they're the distribution agent. They'll go out and send it to the prime brokers. The prime brokers then send it to the actual individual holders of the QCIP, of which there may be dozens of them. Just even thinking about that process, the important thing to note is every single node in that transaction takes a fee. And those fees put together are the 30 to 40 basis points of cost. And the way that that would affect you and me in this relationship is that's 30 to 40 basis points higher on your mortgage, or that's 30 to 40 basis points lower on my realized yield, because this entire process is so manual and so costly. Today, it's that process that we already replicate through smart contracts. Not end-to-end fully yet. There's a lot of pieces that haven't come fully on chain, but that's the first thing. Even just the administration of this transaction is so highly complex, at least in the way that we do it right now, because everyone has balkanized databases, the cost of reconciliation is so high. But when you're on a single source of truth and smart contracts, forgetting even about the use of the term smart contracts, it's just if-then statements move value around in a trustless and easily auditable way, that whole thing disappears. That's the thing that's really, really exciting, I think, to me, to to us here at Block Tower Credit, and really to the participants in this ecosystem. It's not just Block Tower Credit that's focusing on the advantages that this technology has for us. The industry's known it for a decade. It's just only now are people like us coming in being institutional groups of concept. I think the mortgage example is a fun one because I think as soon as you start talking about mortgage-backed securities or structured products, I think some people can get either intimidated or overwhelmed by the complexity of it. It's an interesting one, obviously, with the banking crisis just happening with banks owning a bunch of mortgage-backed securities. I think that traditionally, people think banks give mortgages. I think what people don't understand is that the structured product market, to your point, when people talk about credit creation, they think that, oh, the banks are the source of every form of credit, not understanding that credit is created in so many ways that it's much larger outside of the actual true banking system. I think mortgages are really a fun one because to geeks like us, maybe Fannie Mae pools make sense. But to the average person, what they know is I bought a house. It was 7%. My sister got 3.2%. Now it's 6.5%. Jerome Powell just said now it's going to be 6.7%. So they're used to that nominal yield. So I think one thing that is so helpful in this conversation is to abstract that and say, the government is buying your mortgages at one price. The price you're paying is a different price. One of the greatest reasons between those two numbers being so far separated is all of your point, this friction and replication of data and information that by and large, if we were building it today, we never in a million years would have come up with this convoluted structure, but we have tens of trillions of dollars on the system. The notion of unplugging it, it does seem like a massive undertaking. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those things where it's not going to be an unplug. There are certain ways that people in crypto think that I think is so empowering. For me personally, the whole journey from going to a place like Citigroup to a place like Block Tower and talking about the things that we're talking about right now was 
driven by a deep sense of curiosity and questioning why things are the way they are. And that's endemic across all of crypto and all of the participants in it. That's such an exciting place to be, but it also leads to misunderstanding of how difficult systemic change actually is. I'm going to build this parallel financial system. We're all going to move over to it. That's not how I envision this part of it working. I do believe that there are going to be brand new markets, brand new systems that are created in the new ecosystem. But what I'm talking about is fairly well understood and fairly dense networks of relationships and institutions and regulatory inertia that already works this way. What we're doing, at least in this pocket of crypto, is a lot more around how do we inch forward, keeping an idea of, wait a second, the system should be better. And we'll work back from there and then say, all right, well, how do we incrementally improve the small things? We happen to start with something, like you said, kind of nuanced and nerdy securitizations, but we think it's an incredibly, obviously large TAM. It's something that deeply affects all of us. In the should-be view of the world that I have, what we do today is maybe a small step in a long march towards economic justice. The price that someone pays for our loan is not the same as the one that we <laughs> receive. Closing that gap is something that this technology, I think, can do. We're proving it to ourselves, and hopefully we prove it to everybody else. So what is an example of taking a loan today and using blockchain technology or a smart contract that would either disintermediate or remove some of those nodes that are driving friction and costs into the system? Let's go to the example that I have, and then I'll do something a little bit new. But in the example of a calculation agent, what does a calculation agent do? They just basically say, here's 10,000 mortgages. We got $10 million this month. The senior gets $1 million of interest, $2 million of principal. The junior gets $3 million of interest, and then the residual for whatever. That is a function that is just a simple if-then statement of you're due this amount. And then you send it to DTCC and the paying agents and the prime brokers, and they all go and execute the ACHs or the wires to get you your money. Today, it is already a smart contract for us that does all of that. It calculates how much each investor, depending on which tranche you're in, that you're due. And then the underlying native structure of this technology allows that actual distribution that you're due, which is calculated according to open source auditable code, directly into your wallet. That's already a huge component of the intermediaries that can be disaggregated out of this long term. Even going back to the point that you were making about government pays this price, and we don't get that price, we get something different. Fannie Mae actually had a working paper about this back in 2020, 2021, talking about, well, what is the cost of homeownership? The cost of homeownership, there's PMI, there's insurance, there's obviously the cost of the mortgages, but there's also an embedded cost in terms of lending with something called gain on sale. So what is gain on sale? I'm a mortgage lender, I'm Quicken Loans, I go to you and I say, I'm going to give you a loan for a million bucks. And I'm going to charge you 2% origination fee or something. That's one component of my revenue stream. The other component of my revenue stream is I have this million dollar loan priced at par. It's what I gave you. But I'm going to go and sell it to the government who's going to pay me 103. Or I'm going to go sell it into a securitization or the capital markets where you had alluded to before. The other creation of credit or the other arms of creation of credit here. And I'm going to pay 104 for it. And so that difference between par and 103 or 104 on a million dollar mortgage is $30,000, $40,000. And that's going and getting pocketed by Quicken Loans. Now, it's not nefarious. It's not a bad thing. Quicken Loans has to run a business. 
But why does that cost exist? To be clear, like Fannie Mae estimates this cost to be something like three and a half percent of the cost of your home ownership on your actual mortgage. Why is three and a half percent getting ripped out of this? Well, part of it is because let's say I go and I sell this loan or I issue this loan at par. I might think that in six months from now or nine months from now, I'm going to get 103, but I don't know that for a fact. 2022 could have happened, or I could be Silicon Valley Bank, and I might have this par loan, and it might be worth 85. I've got to go and build in some sort of cushion because there's uncertainty around execution at that point in time. And the execution is later. It's six to nine months from now, because I've got to pull together a number of these assets and eventually get to the scale that some institution will say, okay, well, now there's big enough scale this is worth my time to invest in, to look at, or there's enough loans in here for me to run statistical analysis versus thinking about binary risks, what we alluded to before. And that whole process, if it takes months, only increases the uncertainty, increases the take that Quicken Loans needs on the gain on sale or expected gain on sale in order to feel comfortable about, hey, I'm going to make this loan to you at par or at this rate. The other part of it, though, is A traditional lender, when banks were doing most of the credit intermediation, they had deposits. They were the ones who were funding this themselves. Post-crisis, and even before that, a lot of this lending was starting to move to non-bank originators. Originators who are really in there for the two mainstreams, they don't have active capital themselves. They've got to go out and they're generating origination fees. They just want to make as many loans as possible, which requires them to sell the loans to get the other part of their revenue stream, which is gain on sale. But in order to make the loan in the first place, lenders are a unique beast in the spectrum of operating companies because cash is their inventory. They need to borrow cash in order to make this loan. And so the cost of borrowing cash is a warehouse line or bank will come in and give you a LIBOR or a SOFR plus 250, a 90% advance or whatever. And then you go out, take that cash, pay it. So you've got a cost on that inventory. You've got to have both your origination fees and your gain on sale, which is uncertain and subject to capital markets execution, cover your ability to pay these costs associated with your business, not just the cost of inventory, which is cash, but also your payroll, your distribution, etc. What this technology can allow you to do, though, I think at scale, I would say this is a little bit of a woozy out there thought, but it's like, hey, wait a second. If we were all on the same single source ledger, you've got all these originators going out there. They've got their own customers, their own client base, Quicken Loans, different individual banks, different non-bank originators. But they come into this ecosystem and they say, all right, well, we've created all of these loans. They're fairly commoditized. And we'll just pull them all together at this exact point because we're all in the same single source of truth. And then at that point, instead of waiting six to nine months where they're individually running their own warehouses, filling their own inventory, spending all this time, collectively, you can achieve that type of scale perhaps in a week or two weeks and dramatically lower the time that it takes for you to go from, as an originator, getting that money out the door to getting certainty in terms of execution on the other side. And so perhaps the gain on sale, if you don't have to like project out what the capital market's going to do in six to nine months, and you can do it over two to three weeks, perhaps the gain on sale doesn't need to be three and a half points because you have so much more certainty in terms of, hey, wait a second, I've started this. We're all in this single source of truth. We've already got the technology to do this. I don't need to go through a long 
legal structuring process, bring in all these different counterparties. I just use the same smart contract that I've used over and over again to replicate this entire thing. I get it done in two and a half, three weeks. And all of a sudden, I'm okay as a business competing on lowering the cost of gain on sale or lowering the gain on sale that I need. Because even if I make half a point, it's better for me as a business because I have near certainty that I'm going to get out of this and I'm going to make that full half a point as opposed to put three points at risk over a six to nine month period. And I might get friggin' slammed when I got to sell this loan at 90. And that's just something that I can think of today. The beauty is there's going to be things that I cannot think about. I love these examples because I think when people talk about utility, they're looking for some grand unified theory, but I always find that it's usually in the places of someone building or really saying like, here's a problem. So it really is that insatiable curiosity of why are we doing it this way? And I've said in the past that a healthy disrespect for how things were done is a great thing because it makes you ask, if we were doing this today, would we do it? An absolute disdain, which I think some people do in crypto to their detriment, means like you throw away all the stuff we've ever done before. Mortgage origination and securitization is a great thing for America and a great way to lower the cost of capital. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't even improve it further if we were to rebuild it. So my takeaway from your point was that when Quicken is going against another originator, let's just say they need a thousand mortgages to get to that scale where somebody wants to buy it away from them. They then have to build that up. So they start on day one, do four mortgages today and five tomorrow, and they're working that up and they're creating those loans. They have to wait to a certain scale. So they've got to predict where the interest rates are going to be. One of the hardest things in the world to do, not just over the past year, but just in general. So they're building this buffer. And your point, if I'm understanding it is, you could have multiple originators that were still competing with each other, but as they collectively got to a thousand, so Quicken's got 20 by the end of the week, and this one has a hundred and that one has 50. When they reach a thousand together, they could all instantly sell to a securitization or to a different type of structure that would then make their time to market a lot shorter for reducing the risk they were taking and then the risk that the end customers were paying. I think that's a perfect way to de describe it. Important thing is that today, there are companies out there who do this already. So companies like Agaia or Theorem are out there actually aggregating from other purchasers and then creating their own securitizations off of them. And so it happens, but it's also a highly manual process and it's adding layers of time and complexity to it. It's not reducing it because you're still going through the traditional rails to this point, it's not just the function of, hey, we can aggregate all of this stuff together in real time 100%. I think that that's where this could go in the future, although there are some nuances to that, like perhaps the structure of one loan or one originator's loans is too different than another one. They're not homogenous enough to be in this pool, and that's getting a little bit into the nuances. But you can imagine that this works because people are already doing it. But the fact is, you could do all of it in code automatically. Today, that's the way that Theorem runs the business or the way that any of these guys run the business. There are multiple banks involved. There's multiple legal structurings. It's not a cookie cutter process where I can just continually replicate this over and over in time. You've got to build a new plane every single time you do that. That's effectively how this entire market works. That is really dumb. We don't need to do that. And the fact that this technology can already connect capital participants to the assets that are being originated, borrower to lender automatically, because we're on a single source of truth. There isn't a series of 14 different balkanized databases and counterparties who need to audit and trust each other and, and reconcile all these things. 
we can do that transformation automatically. That is what composability and interoperability really already is in this ecosystem. That to me is the exciting part. And these are just the things that I can think of off the top of my head. The reality is the fact that it would be possible means that there are things that we can't imagine today that would probably be orders of magnitude more important than what I'm talking about. Like I'm talking about shaving a couple of points here and there, you know, that's great, but it could be more than that. And that's what's, I think, so exciting about this space. Like how many people out here running like structured credit hedge funds are thinking about, wait a second, how could the world be better because of something that we're doing? Nobody, <laughs> like <laughs> at least no one who can be honest with themselves. But I think that that's the cool thing about being in this ecosystem. We have great respect for the lessons learned over centuries, millennia of money and how this works. But at the same time, I think you put it so beautifully. We don't have disdain for that, but at the same time, it could be better. I get very excited and optimistically, I want to see that happen and I hope it will. But I'm also realistic that one of the struggles that I see is in the natural fight between innovation and disruption, there's a lot of entrenched interests that are very happy and make a lot of money based on how the system exists today. And there's a lot of incentive to keep it the way because there's a lot of different groups you've named seven different industries that probably no one, unless they've worked in fixed income or credit has ever heard of, but are huge and are billion dollar industries with hundreds of thousands of employees that pay and have regulatory structures around them that make it very difficult to disrupt. It does my analogy for non-finance would be, it was when people pitched me Uber early on and I grew up in Boston and taxi medallions were considered the ultimate asset. If you had one, it just went up forever because it was unbreakable, entrenched with government. Everyone hated it. You hated getting out of a bar and not getting picked up, but it could not be disrupted because it was just deemed too powerful. But I think the interesting part of trying to disrupt finance in this way is the consumer doesn't understand this. The average home buyer has no idea about the 25 participants between them and their house. What they want is a house and they want it at the price that they and their family can afford. Now, I do believe that if politicians got together and really said the American dream might be owning a house, that anything we do to reduce the cost of this is beneficial for societies, we should want to do that. This gets back to the, we're not going to unplug it. We might build stuff in parallel to show it. How do you see those first baby steps of the proof of concept that this idea is so much better, it is going to become obvious that we should move to it? It's certainly something we spend a lot of time thinking about. I think it's probably the biggest risk of anyone working in this industry is not thinking about that question enough. My initial reaction to that would be really twofold. So the first one is, it's not like we're coming in orthogonally to the rest of the traditional finance industry who was asleep at the wheel not thinking about it. The reality is, if you look at what JP Morgan and Onyx have done, which I think is amazing stuff from the traditional financial institution, particularly one in which Jamie Dimon, their CEO, is so anti-Bitcoin, which I think is hilarious because they're <laughs> leading the blockchain like, <laughs> like <laughs> ecosystem on the JPM Onyx. But if you look at what they did recently, last year, they did a pilot of a tokenized $100,000 swap of Singaporean dollars for Japanese yen. And what they used was a fork of Aave and Uniswap to transact this. And they did it in the Polygon network. That's super excited because they're looking at, wait a second, here are these like tried and tested rails from DeFi that are coming into our ecosystem. And we see in our daily course of business of what we need to do, this innovation from the frontier of DeFi is something that we can employ today. 
to try to do what we want. Now, there are a number of things that get to that limit the ability for them to scale that from a compliant perspective, but even just from an underlying technology perspective. But these things are being figured out. Like one thing that I love to talk about or relate blockchain or crypto to is when I first heard about Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, genetically created meat substitutes, a buddy of mine asked me to try it. And I tried it. And I was like, dude, this sucks. And he was like, yeah, but just wait for Beyond Meat 2.0. I was like, oh, shit. I didn't realize that food is now subject to software updates. <laughs> the underlying technology that we're using here, sure, it's not scalable enough today. There isn't built-in native privacy or whatever. It's going to get there. People are working on that right now. And so that's the exciting part that I think there's a tacit understanding between both worlds right now, both in DeFi and in TradFi of our worlds are colliding, whether we want them to or not. So let's embrace it. And you see it starting to happen with some of the biggest institutions in the world. Then the second thing I would say too is, for me, a huge reason why I was so interested in leaving the traditional financial industry and like going into tech as someone who was not a technically competent person. But I still found myself so interested in technology because, to be honest, reading like Shatekari and Thompson stuff, and because he really talks about technology, not from like a perspective of, hey, what does the code allow you to do? For me, it's like, wait a second, how does this technology enable business model shifts? Here's the entire value chain. Who captures value in this value chain if this new technology were to exist? Great examples of that happened in the past. And Ben talks about this quite a bit in terms of just going from hardware to software. And then you start to say, all right, well, in that world in which hardware is a commodity, where the PCs are a commodity, who captures value? Well, it's the person creating the operating system and the applications that you use. The people who will win in this market, if it does happen, is the people who will understand, wait a second, what parts of the value chain get commoditized? when this happens? And then who are the real key players that I need to go after? Now, as an example, we think about mortgages as a consumer product. The mortgage borrower is the consumer. But that's only one way to think about it. The way that I think about this technology from a capital markets perspective is the originator is the customer. The originator is a customer of capital. They are looking to borrow capital or they're looking to offload loans that they create rapidly. And the way that that's done today is through a network of oligopolistic banks. But the banks provide two real functions. One of them is the connection between you and the originator and call it PIMCO or some asset manager on the other side. And they do all these transformations, securitization, they do capital introductions, they provide the warehouses, all of these different things may or may not exist in the future, probably will to some degree. But at the same time, they play a really, really critical value capturing role today because they are the node or the marketplace that sits between the customer, which is Quicken Loans, and PIMCO, who is their supplier. Now, in this future, if the function that all of these guys are doing at Citigroup, like my old trading desk, Goldman, whatever, if that were no longer where the nexus of power was. If on a decentralized system, there is the Quicken Loans and all of these other originators talking directly to the capital markets and no longer needing City to structure the securitization for you or to make this introduction or to help you price the asset or whatever, then these two people start to subvert. The banks may become like the IBMs. 
they are no longer necessary in this process because the value, if you can do this, moves to different parts of the value chain. So that's how I think about it on a larger term scale. Now, the major risk to this, and I've seen this happen over and over again when it comes to fintech companies in the capital markets is capital markets are not a free market. They're a highly regulated oligopolistic ecosystem. And so all of these players in the past who have tried to do this connect issuers to lenders, for example, like TradeWeb or market access, like electronic trading platforms, they can only get to a certain point before they have to sell basically the entirety of their equity to the banks because the banks have distribution. The banks have captured both the supply side on the apples and all of these guys who are issuing bonds and then the PIMCOs and the double lines of the world on the other side who are purchasing them. You try to subvert them for a little while, but you've got to go back to them eventually. While I think that this technology is different, I think it would be irresponsible for people who are building in this ecosystem to forget that history as well. There's a non-zero chance that distribution is more important than product. In fact, in most cases, that's actually the most important thing of a technology or a technology company. The banks have distribution or the traditional system has distribution. The question is, can you build a product that's just that much better using this technology that shifts the power to different parts of the value chain and then connects them in a brand new way without having to go through that distribution channel? I think it's possible for the first time and possibly the only time in our lifetimes with this technology, but it's a major risk of people who think that this technology will change the world. It might just simply be another technology that you need better distribution to go after. I've been fortunate enough to meet Rick McVeigh, the founder, and spend time with him of Market Access. The question I once asked him of, you took over the secondary market. So Market Access is a software that, although bonds aren't traded on an exchange, allow it to feel a lot more digitization of trading, but it's really focused on the secondary market. And I asked him, well, why not attack the primary market? He said, are you going to taste test all my food in New York before I eat it? And it was a funny way to say that is a red line that the banks will never let anyone cross. Secondary, they saw that genie get out of the bottle. Origination is where all the money is. And the two points that you're making is one, not to take it lightly, you are taking on one of the most powerful, entrenched, and regulatory protected industries in the world. And then B, the other point that you made, the Ben Thompson, it comes up a lot of how many people he inspires. And one of the things that I found that connects to an earlier point is that in finance, there's a small group of people that get paid a lot of money portfolio managers, traders, analysts, managing directors, partners. And so when you look at financial services firms, they might employ 50,000, 100,000, but there's a really small group that gets paid a tremendous amount of wealth. Then there's a lot of people that they might take up a larger point of the expenses, but there's hundreds of thousands in the technology operational side. And there's lots of people, but they're not paid nearly the same level of tech. This is one of the biggest things in finance I saw when we talk about fintech, most people think about the consumer side. I think what you and I are talking about is more like the institutional level tech and why it's so bad and why it struggles so much is that it's not what the system values. To the Ben Thompson piece, value does not occur. I was always obsessed with this, but you get paid to have ideas, to talk about the market, to say, I met with the Fed and here's my view on rates. But the truth is that if I was able to find a way to trade 2,000 bonds faster than trading 10, I thought that was miraculous. It would change the world. But that's not as valued because that's considered operational technology. What you get paid is to know if you should be buying ConocoPhillips bonds versus Microsoft bonds and what the spread is. 
And so what's interesting about blockchain technology that I think people lack when they come over is how nuts and bolts guts we're playing with. So I do think, and this is my optimistic thing, is that that to me is the area. So why can't Jamie Dimon come out is exactly this reason. It's a part of the business that if ever actually flipped over would be extremely concerning to the bank's power bases, which I do not believe is disruptable. And I do not believe they're going to be shaken off their perch. However, the area you can focus on is the area that's the undervalued, which is what we're talking about is really the underpinning of how a loan is made, how it's moved around, how a trustee pays, how it things be issued, all of those little fees, which is why I think this is so fascinating. So let's talk about some of the interesting stuff that you're doing now at Block Tower, creating this in this new way. So let's walk through an example of the new version of a loan and how that can be put on chain and some of the pieces you're taking out and what your early findings are. I would say this to start, it's again, still very early, obviously. We straddle these two worlds and these loans being brought on chain in a native way is not just a technological problem. In fact, it already is almost a commoditized problem from a technology perspective. It's a consensus and a legal issue of, okay, wait a second, are we going to get comfortable with this asset level NFT representing the legal ownership over this loan, which is something that I need because... I'm only willing to give you a 30-year mortgage if I can foreclose on your house. These are really, really critical and important things that go into any structured credit investor or just higher market. But the way that we use it, I would start by saying we work with an amazing technology platform and company called Centrifuge, who has created the series of smart contracts and UX and UI that allows us to do what we're currently doing. But all that being said, in our platform, the way that we run this today, each of the individual bonds that we purchase are an asset level NFT. This asset level NFT has access to information like, well, what bond is it? What's the QCIP? What's the interest rate? What's the maturity date? What's the payment frequency? And that whole thing is basically, if you go back to like the big short era time, people are like, wait a second, these are black boxes. I have no idea what's going on inside of this. The asset level NFT provides you that asset level transparency of, wait a second, this is a CLO. It's got these assets inside of it and I can track it in real time. As dollars come in, they're routed through the asset level NFT. So you can start to see here's the payment data associated with this. I'm getting the interest payment on this individual asset, which is all going and being pooled in a smart contract in the centrifuge platform is called an admin wallet or an admin smart contract. And in that case, in this structure, what that smart contract really is, is like the digital twin of the SPV. It's pooling all the capital. And then it's within that SPV, that company before that had assets and liabilities on the other side, SPV does the same thing. It issues tokens, which are liabilities. It issues a connection of cash flows between itself and those tokens. So senior interest, senior principal, junior interest, junior principal, and automatically as dollars come in, routed through the asset level NFTs, you can see I've got this $10 million coming in. It's associated with these individual loans. It's getting pooled in this smart contract. The smart contract is saying, okay, a million dollars goes to senior interest, $3 million goes to senior principal. And then all of that is done automatically. And so the issuance of this structure already happens basically almost simultaneously. We buy a $10 million asset, it automatically issues a $7 million senior tranche, a $3 million junior tranche, and then those are sold out into the market. That's how the smart contract gets dollars, and then that's how you purchase the assets. Are these normal assets that have traditional QCIPs from the traditional world, or are these new assets? Exactly. Normal assets from the traditional world. So today, what we're doing is 
we're buying bonds in secondary from my old trading desk or trading desk like it. But this function could be anything. Before we do new assets, one thing that I always get tripped up with, because I think there's a lot of benefits before we go fully on chain, where it could act as a centralized system of keeping track of payment of calculation agent. But I always get confused about how we keep those worlds together. So there's actually, so you call up Citigroup and you say, I want to buy this QSIP. So we have a single QSIP that underneath it is a bunch of loans. And you could trade that. You could call up Fidelity or Goldman and trade with them if you wanted to. But instead, what you're going to do is convert that bond QSIP, which has cash flows associated with it. It's a legal structure. There's a legal document. There's a piece of paper you can go to court over. And you're going to convert that QSIP to an NFT. Is that right? So we don't convert it. We just create a digital twin. So today, the two systems run almost entirely in parallel because in an ideal world, you go to DTCC, they say, all right, we'll convert it to a Reg S version of it, which is effectively what that is in EuroClear, which is a different centralized ledger. I would love a future in which I just go to DTCC and I'm like, I want you to convert this into an NFT so that it's represented on Ethereum mainnet. That is not the way that it works today. I'm a believer that some system like Ethereum or a network of systems will be the global settlement ledger of all assets in the future. But we're not there yet today. We are creating a digital twin of all of this stuff. We are replicating the same transactions or like taking the dollars and we're applying it to the digital twins. But at some point end to end, it all has to move on chain in order for this to work as holistically or as smoothly as we're currently describing. Okay. So we're basically creating a shadow system where we have an asset level token, the non-federal token that represents the QCIP, it's digital twin. And then when a cash flow comes in, the trustee is paying you your cash flows. Do you own 100% of this in this example? Yeah, sure. We can own 100% of the QCIP in this example. And I want to come back to that point about DTCC of if they're a competitor or if they're a vendor in the future vision, because I've always thought of Whoever wants to do this is definitionally trying to disrupt them. But what I find interesting in this case is, and the proof of concept you guys are doing, those cash flows come in, someone then has to put them in the wallet. So someone has to be trusted to take the payment. Is that you or is that a third party? So today it's us. We will have third parties in the near future doing that type of transaction. But yeah, you're exactly right. This is not a purely trustless system. We are subject to extreme legal (laughs) documents and and scrutiny and basically very, very narrowly defined things that we can and cannot do pursuant to this transaction. But that's a traditional system. That's not code is law or anything like that. We want that to change. This is a band-aid. We're beginning a merge ourselves. There's a merge of this system and what's possible in the blockchain ecosystem. But then there are the limitations of both the counterparties and what they're willing to do in the traditional system, but also just the traditional system is broken. And so it doesn't really work like something that we can just go in and connect in via API. Everything is done automatically. We are building technology around that. We will get there. If we don't do it, our partners will do it. And that is the collective goal of BlockTower and its partners is to eventually get that system to be completely on-chain. Our goal is to be the first end-to-end on-chain structured credit hedge fund. I hope it takes us three years. I tell people that in this industry, why don't you just do it in a year or a year and a half? I thought three years is wicked fast. (laughs) That's what I said. That's pretty ambitious because we've got to change a lot of things to get there. Today, it's important to recognize that 
what we're doing on chain is a replication to some degree. There are novel things that are happening, but the parts that connect to the real world, which effectively come down to the asset level NFTs, the creation of the senior and the junior trunks, the CLO, all of that is purely digital. But the parts that connect, we've got to interface and reflect what happens in the real world on chain. And we've got to do that in a today semi-manual fashion. I think it's been good to explain how the world works where we are today. And now I want to move to what we could do with this. So two parts that come up of obvious or potentially glaring problems. Sometimes people say feature and some say bug. And the two are privacy and reversibility. So on privacy, the credit hedge funds that I've traded against are notoriously very secretive and don't want you to know the moves they're making. And if you understand how they're valuing cash flows or what they're paying, that's a hard part of it. And maybe that's just something we're all working on or the industry is working on to get to privacy. And then the second thing has to do with the reversibility, which I think freaks people out a little bit. And here's why. I don't think people understand how many trades are broken every day and unwound because of mistakes, but they're just not aware of because Citigroup and Fidelity upset because accidentally Citigroup said we sold it to you, but we also sold it to Vanguard with two different desks at the same time. So now we've got to pick a favorite and someone's going to lose on that deal. A trade is legally done. We can all go to court, but we still find a way to say, nope, send it back. So I think some people think of board apes getting drained from wallets as if you could lose your house or a trade could be done. So I think the reversibility thing is an interesting piece to touch on because the benefits of T plus instant settlement, we went from T plus four to three to two. Now the industry is freaking out about one and you're talking about instant. So I guess which one of those do you want to dive into? But I'm curious about how we will attack those in the future if this is the direction of travel. It's a great point. And honestly, those two things are, I think, top of mind for us. When it comes to privacy, there are very good reasons for why people want their trades to remain private. If you're a gigantic fund and you're buying an asset of which there's only 10 million outstanding and your wallet is doxxed, some of Block Tower's wallets are doxxed and we play in a with token world, but effectively infinite amount of tokens that we can buy. But that's not true of discrete pools of loan. If there's only 10 million out there and somebody sees PIMCO's buying $3 million of it, the other dealers are going to come in and basically say, all right, well, PIMCO wants this. Let me go and buy this $7 million tranche and just re it to them later on. And it is how that market works today. Now, I think the important thing to note is like that might not always be how the market works. If peer-to-peer trading happens in a totally digital way, the behavioral stuff just doesn't exist. I don't think that that's my base case, but it's a possibility. But yeah, I definitely agree. Privacy is going to be critically important in terms of the glide path or bringing people onto this ecosystem. They're not going to want to be fully doxxed constantly every single trade or people know what they're doing. But that's where you see technology zero-knowledge proofs coming in and saying, all right, well, here are zero-knowledge proof powered, perhaps could be native to the blockchain. This privacy is a native component of what we're trying to do. It's still in the public. It's still in the open ecosystem. But you can choose what you want to expose or what you don't want to expose. It's important to note that in our traditional system, the idea of even finding where the assets sit constitutes the bulk of what a sell-side trader does today. Why does a sell-side trader take people to the club? It's because I'm trying to get you drunk so that I can ask you, do you own this thing? So that when I find somebody who wants to buy that, I know where it is. Now, where it is, is a question of real importance because the friction of figuring out where it is, is really, really difficult. To be honest, in DTCC, 
or there was an example of this over the course of my career, student loan bonds, I think this was maybe 2017 or 2018, were in danger of reaching their final maturity because post-crisis, there were all of these different regulations that came in that slowed down the prepayment rates. And so people thought, oh, these bonds are going to be gone by the mid-2020s or something like that. But if you run it out at current speeds, they're going to be here until 2040. And so if it breaches the final maturity, then it can no longer have the rating. And a lot of these were investment-grade rated assets. They're still prime collateral. They're just paying off way slower than what you would have wanted. What basically ended up happening is there was a massive freakout in the market where they were just going out and saying, all right, well, we've got to go and find 100% of these bondholders because it loses the investment-grade rating. Then these purchasers who have to have an investment-grade rating are going to dump billions of dollars of this on the open market. And my holdings are going to be impaired because nobody wants to buy this super long-duration stuff. But in order to actually amend the documents and extend the final maturity, you've got to go out and find 100% of the borrowers. And so people were paying us at City and saying, hey, can you go and help us find all the note holders in these deals? Because if we don't collectively work together to amend this, we're probably going to lose 30 points on a mark-to-market basis on our bonds. And we couldn't find that. There was one deal that did it. It was because one asset manager owned 100% of the sack. That is just a massive failure of the system. The fact that you can't even find where they are is one thing. It's important to note that where they are and who owns it can be separated. Who it is that owns it is one thing. And I can understand why that privacy can and should exist, many use cases. But the fact that you can't even find where it is, it's a clear failure of the system. Over time, you've got to imagine that there will be some sort of rational, better product available when people know where everything is. They might not know who it is, but if I want it, I can at least go out there and find it. And then to your point about reversibility, this is definitely something I think about. It's not a function of should this be possible to reverse a transaction, yes or no. It's more like, what does reversibility mean? Reversibility probably to me means I can trust this more because if I make a mistake and I'm not beholden to it, then I'm more likely to use this technology because a fat finger and I lose, that's unacceptable. I cannot do that. I don't trust that technology. I don't even trust myself to do something like that, which I think is probably the barrier for many people to hold assets in a cold ball. I don't trust myself to do that. Well, one, reversibility may be the only way to do that. It's possible. I wouldn't make that leap in my own mind quite yet. But the deeper question is, how do I create more trust in this system? Multi-party compute to systems like Fireblocks to help me manage my ability to transmit this information. I whitelist this address. I go out and I can only send it to this thing. And it has to be subject to all of these policies. Can a mixture of that plus perhaps... There is some sort of, hopefully not centralized party, but some sort of smart contract, Gnosis safe or whatever, that sits as an intermediary in these types of transactions as a digital clearinghouse. And a digital clearinghouse in this function, it doesn't need to exist. We could face each other in a total peer-to-peer transaction. But the benefit of using this digital clearinghouse is, well, perhaps T plus one is a feature, not a bug, because we need that day to go and reconcile ourselves whether or not this was the right trade, whether or not we double booked this trade or whatever. I do think a lot of these things disappear natively with this technology. But the question to me isn't reversibility, yes or no. Reversibility is one tool. And are there to engender more trust or create more trust in the system? And ultimately, all of finance, all of money is about trust. 
how do I create more trust? And it's not enough to just say, here's a trustless system. It's decentralized because trust is inherently behavioral. When you start to talk about these types of transactions, this type of amount of money, it's never going to be purely trustless. I'm going to just trust this code. It's not how we're going to get to change the system as it is today with the players who play in it. Reversibility, I think, is just one tool. There are many other things that I think we've got to figure out as an industry to create more trust in this technology for specific use cases. I think the point you made that this technology could do away with a lot of that is a really good one. The fat finger problem, and there's always these things where there's these really small edge cases that everyone worries about. I've seen them in my career where people have made $100 million fat finger mistakes and they were really bad and had to be reversed. But interestingly, probably the most common source of errors is actually the double spend problem, which the blockchain technology specifically handles really, really well. So if I think about all the trade errors, 95% of them could have been the same bond was traded to two different people accidentally at the same time. And to your point, you actually remove that entire error band. Now, you still have to deal with the, can we get to a place where if someone does fat finger, you can unwind stuff if there truly was an honest error that it could potentially be undone, but that gets back to the counterparties and the ability and willingness to work with each other, just like you would in modern business. So I think that that one can be overplayed, but I think you make a really great point that some of the greatest problems are the fact that we're not all looking at the same data and it's not the competitive advantage. All the firms are paid to have a view, a perspective. This is the investment side. Why do I want to buy this versus that? That can get completely caught up in the fact that they can't even figure out what's available to buy on any given day or they're wasting their time and their effort and energy on things that aren't necessarily value add to their end customers. I totally agree with that. You're 100% right about a lot of that. Even the double trading thing that you brought up earlier, trading the bond to two separate places, that's core blockchain innovation. That's getting rid of the double spend problem. One of the things that comes up in our own transaction is when we were creating the documents, this company that has assets and liabilities is governed by a document called the indenture trust document. And it basically tells you, here's the waterfall that you're calculating, but all of these other things about like, this is how this company runs. And it's a very narrow set. And part of that transaction, part of that document in many of these transactions has limitations around who can be the purchaser of this asset, transferability. And so how is transferability enforced in the traditional world? Well, it's enforced after the fact. I'm going to tell you, you can't sell this to non-accredited investors or whatever, but I can't keep you from doing that. I can only use the stick afterwards to say, if you do this and we find out about it, we're going to come and mess you up. When we were going through and really deeply thinking about every aspect of this transaction, what are the pieces that don't need to exist anymore in this traditional 15 section document, whatever it is, and we came up to transferability. Now, for our transactions, we don't allow transfers because we are the sole purchaser of this transaction. But then we were thinking about it. Well, that's actually built into the token itself. The token literally can only go to our address. It's native to this technology. This technology just does render this entire section of this whole thing completely moot. Because even if I wanted to trade it, I literally cannot. And that's powerful. Part of the reason why people don't like CBDC, you can restrict on the front end. I totally understand why you wouldn't want that. But at the same time, there are powerful applications for that in our use cases that might just save us all millions of dollars on legal fees because we don't need that to be drafted in every single transaction. <laughs> just don't tell the lawyers. Kevin, this is always fun catching up with you. To end it, what are you most excited to either build yourself or invest in at Block Tower over the next six months and over the next six years? 
I would say over the next six months, it's continuing to just do what we're doing in the sense that we are bringing more and more of this stuff on chain with the help of amazing partners like Centrifuge. And that roster is growing dramatically. If you're working in this space and you're interested in what we're doing, reach out to us at credit at blocktower.com. But beyond that, I would say over the next six years, I think really what we want to do is act as an interpreter between DeFi and this technology and the traditional world. We span both natively. We are doing this already. We're learning a lot of these very nuanced things that I think are necessary to tell both sides of the coin. Hey, if you want this merger to work, you've got to talk to each other. It's not going to be as simple as just, I'm going to build this completely brand new system and you're going to come on board or even for TradFi. TradFi has already started, as I mentioned before, they're already forking DeFi protocols. They know that they're not innovating this stuff internally and they're not creating the technology internally. The innovation is coming from the entropy that is out there because it's in this open source ecosystem. And so they're looking to it and they're saying, these guys are building these things, but they're not building it for our use case. What parts of that can we take to allow us to really start to enhance our business? And there's a lot more of that to come. We're in the early, early stages of this, but there's an awakening on both sides, how important it will be for this industry and for us as consumers, for us as, as people who just live in this system to do that in the future. And so... I think for us, we want to play a critical role, whether that's building the technology, whether that's simply just by being the shepherds. That's what drives us. And I think we're really excited about it going forward. Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for the time today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 